So I've been talking about being a witness. And last week I preached on the life of Mary Magdalene and how Mary Magdalene was the first witness of the resurrection and how that uh, I used her life as an example of how we could be better witnesses. Uh, she was a woman who was redeemed. She wasn't defined by her past. She was a woman who had had a personal encounter, a revelation of Jesus, the risen Lord. And then she had to run and tell it once she saw him. Even though the guys didn't believe him, she still had to run and tell it. And that's what a witness does. A witness runs and tells. Amen? Amen. So this morning, I'm going to look at another story. And, and to, to my remembrance, I've never preached on this. So it was so fresh and new to me. But it's the story of Jesus encountering the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. So let's begin reading with Luke chapter 24 and verse 28. Luke 24, 28. Then they drew near to the village where they were going, and he indicated that he would have gone farther, but they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them, and now it came to pass as he sat at the table with them that he took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they knew him, and he vanished from their side. And they said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road, and while he opened the scriptures to us? So they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem, and found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. And they told about the things that had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Now, if you'll go back into verse 13, we'll, we'll walk through this story together. So what's happening here is that Jesus has risen from the dead. The ladies saw him, and according to the gospel accounts, also Peter and John ran to the tomb. And they saw that the tomb was empty. So the women saw him. Peter and John ran to the tomb and saw that it was empty. And now the ladies, had, because the ladies had brought back news to the disciples, they didn't believe he's risen from the dead. And here he encounters two other people on the road to a town or a little village called Emmaus. And these people start a conversation with Jesus and they didn't know who he was. And they start telling him about all the things that have happened in Jerusalem. Notice how this goes. Verse 13, Now behold, two of them were traveling the same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem, and they talked together of all these things which had happened. So it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went to them. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. Something was going on. They couldn't see him. And I believe physically they didn't know who he was. They couldn't recognize who he was. I believe that. I don't know if the Lord supernaturally covered their understanding or didn't allow them to recognize him so that we could have this conversation or what went on. But there's something deeper going on spiritually that these guys had followed the Lord they weren't part of the 11 remaining disciples, but evidently were part of the larger circle of followers of Jesus. But they didn't understand. And not recognizing him by sight 
is indicative of what was going on in their hearts that they really didn't understand about the resurrection of Jesus. So they're talking with him, verse 17, and he says to them, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another? And why are you sad? And they say this, and the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, you are, are you uh, only a stranger in Jerusalem and you have not known the things which have happened in the last days or in, the, in these days? And he said to them, what things? I mean, he's baiting them. What things? So they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified. But we were hoping, but we were hoping, but we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. So many different things are going on here. Let me try to reel them all in. First of all, there's a conversation Jesus has with these two disciples who don't recognize him. We're given the name of one of the disciples. His name was Cleopas. The other, we don't know. Some think it was just another man. Some believe it may have been Cleopas's wife. According to tradition, his wife was named Mary. And according to tradition, Cleopas was Joseph's brother. So it would have been an uncle to Jesus. And Mary would have been Mary, the mother of Jesus' sister-in-law. And she's the Mary who ends up at the cross with John and Mary, Mary Magdalene, and the women. It's a theory. But all we know is it was just two men, one of whom was named Cleopas. They're going to Emmaus, which was a village... And it's interesting, this village of Emmaus was famous in Jewish history because there is where the Israelites defeated the Syrians and backed off the Syrian army in the intertestamental period. There's a book, or there are books called the Books of Maccabees. And in the Books of Maccabees, you hear about the time between the Testaments when Israel was taken over by the Assyrians, Assyrians, and there was this Antiochus Epiphanes IV who was a despotic ruler, and that the Israelites revolted and actually won in the revolt. It was really a miraculous thing. And the temple had been desecrated by Antiochus Epiphanes, and they claim, history does, that he went in and slew a pig on the altar of God. And so the Israelites went back and rededicated the temple and cleansed the temple according to Jewish law and lit a candle for each, each day of purification. That's where we get the feast of Hanukkah. And so um, Emmaus is important in those battles against the Syrians. What's also interesting is that these two disciples were hoping that Jesus was the one who would restore the kingdom of Israel and redeem Israel. They were hoping he was the one. Now, the term redeem first appears. There's something in Bible study called the law of first mention. And when something's first mentioned, it's significant to see why it's there. The first time the word redeem is mentioned in Scripture is in the book of Exodus, chapter 6, verse 6 
when God is getting ready to set the children of Israel free, he tells them, he says, Therefore say to the children of Israel, telling Moses, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage and will redeem you with an outstretched arm. So redemption to an Israelite meant God's coming and rescuing the nation. And he's taking over and bringing us out of slavery or bondage into freedom. So when people looked to Jesus, there was this understanding brewing in first century Israel that they believed the Messiah was going to come. There was a heightened messianic expectation that the Messiah would come, and when he would come, he would come as a military leader, and he would kick the Romans out. He would take up the sword, reestablish Israel as a kingdom, and take his rightful place as a son of David. They believed that. Notice John chapter 6, when Jesus performs the miracle of feeding the 5,000 with one young boy's lunch. After he does that, the Bible says in John 6 that the people were desiring to make him king. And what did he do? He dispersed the crowds. He put the disciples in a boat and sent them on the sea. And he went up on the mountain to be alone with the Father. Because I believe that was the major temptation in his life. Was to take an exit route. Go the way the people wanted him to go. If you notice even in Matthew chapter 4 in the temptation of Jesus. That in the temptation of Jesus, one of the temptations that Satan passes before him is he takes him up on a high mountain and he says, if you'll fall down and worship me, all these kingdoms will be yours. You can be the rightful ruler that you're supposed to be In Caesarea Philippi, Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is walking around with his disciples and he said, whom do men say that I, the son of man, am? And they gave their opinions and then finally Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And he says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood is not revealed this unto you, but my father who is in heaven. And I say unto you that you, thou art Peter, and upon this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I mean, wow. Peter understood he's the, he's the Christ, and Christ is a Greek translation of the Old Testament Hebrew, Messiah. That's what it means. Messiah comes from the Hebrew Mashiach, which means anointed or to be smeared with oil. Christos is to be anointed or smeared with oil. He's the chosen one. He's the anointed one. And then a few minutes later, Jesus starts telling them in Caesarea Philippi about all that he must go through, how he's going to suffer, how he's going to die at the hands of the religious authorities in Jerusalem. And Peter stands up and says, no way, Lord. Let it not be so. And Jesus looks at him and says, get behind me, Satan. He, why did he say that? He recognized the spirit influencing Peter was the same spirit he encountered in the wilderness temptation, the same spirit he encountered when, he, when the crowds were desiring to make him king. I even believe the wrestling he went through in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. It was that wrestling, I think, with the suffering servant route 
The people wanted a king. The disciples wanted a king. Some of their questions were, Lord, when we come into the kingdom, who's going to sit on your right hand? I don't want to be um, disrespectful, but I could just imagine Jesus going, are you, are you kidding me? We healing people here. We're talking about the kingdom, and you're talking about who's going to sit on my right hand. It was like he was here, and they were here. It's like these ships were passing in the night. He was work. Oh, hallelujah. He was working a plan that they couldn't see. Just like the disciples on the road to Emmaus, they couldn't see it. They couldn't see it. And so what did Jesus tell them when he's the road to Emmaus? Once, he said, once they talk about it, they said, we were hoping this guy was the one. And Jesus says in verse 24, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe. Slow of heart to believe in all the prophets had spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? Don't you understand the Messiah was supposed to suffer? The Christ was supposed to suffer. And then the Bible says, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them and all the scriptures, the things concerning him. All they would have had to have done, and I'm sure Jesus did it in this evening with them, is turn back to Isaiah. And if you look at Isaiah into what we call the suffering songs of Isaiah, there's some, there's some very interesting things that appear, and somehow it, it, it bypassed them. It says this, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He has no former comeliness that we should see him. There is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men. Man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we did, as it were, we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. And so he starts showing them from Moses prophesying that a great prophet would come all the way through to the Psalms, Psalm 2, Psalm 110, Messianic Psalms, into the, into the writing prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel, showing them how the Messiah would come, but he wouldn't at first come as a military conqueror. He would come as a suffering servant. He would come as a suffering servant. And so who they were looking for is not what they got. That they were looking for the kingdom to be taken over. And you, you encounter the zealots in the New Testament, in the Gospels. Those are the guys ready to take up arms. I mean, they're ready to go to war. Just give them a shout. They're there. Those are the zealots. They're ready to go. But you know what? When God wanted to change the world, he didn't send just a politician. Politicians can do great things and shift the world to some extent. But when he wanted to save the world, he didn't send a politician. 
When he wanted to save the world, he didn't send a great teacher or philosopher. When he wanted to save the world, he didn't just send a great businessman. When he wanted to save the world, he sent his only begotten son. Because the people of Israel were looking for another Moses. Come and lead us out and lead us into the promised land. But what they got instead was not Moses, they got the lamb. Um, and, and it's the feast of the Passover. The irony is they're walking to the place of battle. It's during the feast of Passover when the lamb was slain and the lamb was placed over the doorpost in the, in the history of Israel and their exodus. If you read about it in the book of Exodus, and just join me on Wednesday nights. I'm teaching through it right now. And it was the lamb and the blood of the lamb that was to be placed over the doorpost. And when the death angel came, if he saw the blood, he passed over. And then every year, the nation of Israel would celebrate the Passover. But what was hidden in that mystery was the lamb. The lamb was the key element here. And even into the tabernacle structure and the temple structure of Israel's worship, that once a year, a lamb would be slain. And the high priest would go into the most holy place and sprinkle the blood of the lamb on the Ark of the Covenant, and there was a time-stamped forgiveness that for one year the sins of Israel would be forgiven. And so this was in Israel's history, and God had shown them by shadow and type and prophetic word what would happen, but they didn't get it. The Pharisees and leaders definitely didn't get it, but even his disciples didn't fully get it. The women got it. <laughs> Listen, women should be shouting amen and punching your husband right now, but the women got it. The men didn't get it. Oh, hallelujah. But what God had planned, from the, according to John the Revelator, from the foundation of the earth, he had planned to send his son as the lamb. He had planned to, he made provision already. Somehow he had already made provision, already had it in his mind what would happen when this man he created and placed in the garden would be unfaithful and would fall into sin. How many of you would get married tomorrow if you knew the person you were getting married to would be unfaithful to you? But I believe God in his foreknowledge knew the man he was creating would be unfaithful. But he went ahead and created him anyhow, and he loved him through it all. And what he did is he already had it planned that one day I will come and redeem. I will repair the breach. I will repair this relationship. And it's going to happen through my only begotten son who would come. No wonder when he stepped up on the shores of the River Jordan, John the Baptist looked at him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away thee the sin of the world. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. When John the Revelator had his vision in the book of Revelation, he saw the throne of God and he said in the midst of the throne coming out of that context was the Lamb as if it had been slain from the foundation of the earth. And then there's a scroll that represented whatever the title deed to humanity or the future events of humanity or whatever that scroll represented 
hand, and there was no one who could unlock it but the Lamb coming out of the midst of the throne. Hallelujah. And when the Lamb appeared, all heaven began to rejoice. The seraphim flew. The four and twenty elders bowed. The place shook. Earth worshipped. The sea worshipped. What was beneath the world worshipped. All bowing. One day, every tongue shall confess. Every knee shall bow before the Lamb of God and declare that he is the Son of God to the glory of the Father. Come on. God had a plan. It wasn't man's plan. It was his plan. It wasn't to come as a great conqueror. It was to come as a suffering servant who would lay down his life because we saw one day there would be a boy from the Appalachian Mountains named Hans Hess who needed not a politician, not another philosophy. He needed the blood of the only Son of God to wash away the sin and break the yoke and break the bondages on his life. One day God saw you that there would be one of you coming who would need forgiveness and need redemption and need salvation and need to be brought out of darkness into the marvelous light. And only the Lamb could get it done. Come on. Somebody give him a shout. I feel like running down to Hardy's and shouting through the drive-thru. Hallelujah. <laughs> then they drew near to the village where they were going and indicated that they would have gone, he would have gone farther. They came near to the village, and Jesus is going to keep on walking. He had a habit of that. If you remember on the Sea of Galilee, the disciples see him and he's just walking. And would have passed them by. But somebody's got to get hungry and start shouting, start crying out and get his attention. But they constrained him and said, stay the night with us. So they go in and they have, they have supper together, right? And when they were having supper, the Bible says that he sat at the table with them he took bread, he blessed it, and broke it. In Jewish tradition, the head of the family would stand up and would break the bread and say the blessings, and the family would eat. But this night was different. When he stood up, broke the bread, and blessed it, he gave it to them, and the Bible says, then their eyes were opened. And they knew him. Oh, my word. Oh, my word, we've been walking with Jesus all day. Then their eyes were opened, and they knew who he was. They recognized him. And the Bible says, then he disappeared, vanished. He vanished from them. And then they said to one another, did not our hearts burn within us? While we talked with him on the road and while he opened up the scriptures to us, we should have known. We were on fire when he was speaking. And so they rose up that very hour, not wasting time, and returned to Jerusalem and found the 11 and those who were with them gathered together. It, it sounded like to me they went at night and they didn't care. As soon as he took off, they took off. Why? That's what a witness does. Amen. A witness is one who's been given the revelation of who Jesus is. You've encountered him. 
Maybe you haven't seen him physically, but you've encountered him in spirit. You've been given the revelation of who Jesus is, and the bread's been broken. Your eyes have been opened, and now you can't help but get up off your couch <laughs> and go tell somebody how much God loves them. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Now listen, he came as a lamb the first time. The second time he comes, he's coming as a lion. He didn't come and establish a physical kingdom. He established the kingdom of God, which is a spiritual kingdom. Second time he comes, the way I understand it, he's establishing his kingdom physically. And if you read the, the, the passages about the coming of the Lord, there's judgment woven in those passages. That he's coming as a thief in the night. Who's, the thie who's he coming as a thief in the night to? To the people who walk in darkness. I'm going to show you this. We got, we got time, right? Let's look at this. Look with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Notice the coming of the Lord here. He's talking about the coming of the Antichrist, chapter 2, verse 8. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power signs and lying wonders and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love and the tr of the truth that they might be saved. God is coming and he's going to destroy them. He's going to destroy the Antichrist. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. Verse 9. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how we, you turned from God, you turned to God from idols to serve the living true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. There's a term there, wrath in Greeks called orge, and it's talking about the judgment of God. That when he comes the next time, he's coming with judgment. And he's coming to execute judgment on the kingdoms of this world. Daniel said he saw a rock hewn out of the mountain that came tumbling down and destroyed all the other kingdoms. Isaiah said there's a day coming when all nations shall go up to Jerusalem to learn the law of the Lord. He said there's coming a day when the lamb will lay down with the lion. The young child will play in the poisonous snake's den. Zechariah chapter 14, the Lord himself shall set his feet on the Mount of Olives. And when he sets his feet on the Mount of Olives, the mountain shall cleave east to west. And he will make his journey right to the eastern gate and walk through that door that no one's been able to enter for centuries. And then Zion will be the capital of the Messianic kingdom. Call me crazy, I still believe in it. So he's coming again, and there's judgment in his coming. There's wrath in his coming. He will come and set up his kingdom, and our, everything will be straight, and all the balances will be weighed out of judgment, and all inequities will be equitable or justified, and all the bad people will be put down, and death and hell will be delivered up. Hallelujah. And all these things will happen in the eschatological workings out of God. Right now, however, we're in a window of grace. 
Right now, we're in the greatest opportunity mankind has ever seen, and that is we get to preach the good news. You don't have to die in sin. You don't have to live in bondage. You don't have to live in depression. You don't have to live with anxiety on your back. You don't have to be a sad person anymore. You don't have to live every day wondering where the next drink's coming from or the next pill's coming from or who the next person is you're going to sleep with. God can set you free from every bit of it. The lamb has already been slain. The bondage has already been broken. The price has already been paid for your redemption. We get to preach that now. It's the good news. Hallelujah. Everywhere we go, we got a smile on our face. We have joy in our heart. He's given us life and life more abundantly. I'm overflowing with the blessings of God because I'm blessed going in and I'm blessed coming out and I'm blessed in the field and I'm blessed at home. Not because some politician came and made it for Hans. Jesus came from heaven and said, I'm going to wreck the kingdom of hell. The Son of God was made manifest that he might destroy the works of the enemy. Somebody give him a praise. Hallelujah. Oh, hallelujah. Come on, punch your neighbor and say, he's about to preach right now. Hallelujah. Somebody shout hallelujah. So they rose up early, or they rose up that very hour, rather, and returned to Jerusalem and found the 11 and those who were with them gathered together. Now listen, my Bible, the next phrase has an exclamation point on it, so I'm going to read it that way, all right? And here's what they, they ran and found the disciples. And here's what they said. The Lord is risen indeed. You know, when kids get excited, it's just like, <laughs> the Lord is risen indeed, and he's appeared to Simon. It's true. We just, we just hung out with him all night and had dinner with him. The Lord is risen indeed. Come on, shout it with me. The Lord is risen indeed. Come on, look at your neighbor. It's going to be super awkward. But look at him and just say it like those men did. The Lord is risen indeed. Moses was dead on the mountain somewhere. God had to take him and bury him so nobody would make a shrine out of it. Isaiah, Ezekiel, dead somewhere, buried in a tomb. David, I can take you to the tomb of David in Jerusalem today. All the prophets of old, except Elijah and uh, Enoch, who were translated, all dead somewhere and buried. And other gods, Buddha, Hare Krishna, the, you know, uh, Muhammad, all buried somewhere. But I've been to the garden tomb. I've been to the church of the Holy Sepulchre. Both sides, whichever one's right, it doesn't matter to me because both are empty. Hallelujah. I've been to both of them. Not one bone, not one shred of evidence there. Just a sign over the door saying, he is risen. Why seek ye the living among the dead? Why hang out with dead people and dead stuff and get with the living? Why seek ye the dead among the living among the dead? He's not here. He 
is risen indeed. Come on, give him a shout. The suffering servant of God came and he died and he with, under, undertook all of the punishment and the beating and the scourging and carried his cross all the way to Golgotha and there was mocked and spit upon and the soldiers bargained for his clothes and there they derided him and just wait, waited until they could go up and pierce his side and he already been dead so they wouldn't have to break his bones so he wouldn't be broken according to Jewish law. Nonetheless, all of that he endured so that you and I could sit here today and enjoy this Holy Ghost feel we got, to enjoy the gifts of the Spirit we have, to enjoy this new life we have. God, help us be witnesses who now run out and tell the news, I've encountered the living Jesus. He's not dead. He's alive. Hallelujah. He's alive at 1107. Hallelujah. Highway 17 in Elizabeth City at Fountain of Life Church. I went in there and I felt him there. I felt him in the parking lot. I felt him sitting next to my brothers and sisters. He's still living. He's alive. He's alive. He's alive. He's alive. Come on, if you believe it, stand on your feet and give him your best praise. Come on, give him your best praise. Hallelujah. Let every devil in Elizabeth City know we serve the God who sealed your fate. Oh, come on, somebody give him praise like he's alive. This will make a wooden man want to shout. Come on, hallelujah. God is good, God is good, God is good. You know, years ago, I was praying. I lived in a little apartment in Virginia Beach in the 90s, and I was praying on the carpet, face down, and I, I felt this presence of the Lord come over me, and I, and I looked up, and I saw in a vision... It was, an, it was a vision. I saw the Lord, and he was beaten and marred and bloody and crawling along the ground, and he looked at me. It rocked my world to know what he went through for me because we read about it in words, but when you see it like that, it took me to another level. And then to think that that wasn't his end, that he went on and rose from the dead. I had a professor at the time who was a Presbyterian theologian. And he said, I was, I'd gone through all this theological study and I got a job as a youth pastor in a church. And the pastor came to me one day and he said, I want you to give the Easter sermon this year. 
And he said, okay, yes, sir, I'll do it. And he agreed to do it. But he said, I had a problem. I didn't believe in the resurrection. I'd studied all this stuff, and I still didn't believe in it. So I went and studied all the scriptures. And I prepared this message. And I got up to the pulpit, and I started preaching. And it got to the point where it came out of the tomb. And he said, it hit me. He really is alive. And he said, I started shouting, he's risen. He's risen. Sometimes you can get saved preaching, I guess. I mean, come on, how many can shout it with that man? He is risen. Oh, come on, lift your hands and give him praise. Father, we thank you. Oh, we thank you, Lord. We thank you, Father. We thank you. We thank you, Lord. Thank you. We serve a living God, a real God. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Oh, we get, come on, just a little bit more. Lord, we love you. We love you. Thank you for the good news. Thank you for the good news, the good news, good news. Thank you for the good news. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Thank you for the good news, for the good news, for the good news. Every head bowed with me and every eye closed. If you're here and you're not serving the Lord, or if you feel there's something between you and God, I want to give you an opportunity to pray and give you an opportunity to accept the Lord into your heart. If you're here and you feel like, Pastor, I need the Lord in my life and I need the forgiveness of sins and I've never asked Jesus into my heart, but I want to right now. If that's you, would you do me a favor and just raise your hand so I can see it? I'm not going to embarrass you. I just want to know who you are. Thank you, thank you. Thank you. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray. Maybe there's others of you who need to, need to raise your hand and say, Pastor, pray for me right now. I need Jesus in my life. I need him in my life. I need that freedom you're talking about. I need that, that life you're talking about. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray. The Bible says in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 10, we're going to do what the Bible says. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 says these words. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So salvation requires a confession and an assurance in your heart. So if you believe right now, Based on that, we're going to pray and confess. So let's pray. Everybody praying with me. Father, I confess my sins. Please forgive me of all my sin. Wash me in your precious blood. Jesus, be the Lord of my life. I walk away from the past, and I walk into your arms. I confess you are my Lord. I confess I am born again. I confess all my sins are gone. In Jesus' name I pray. Come on, if you believe your confession, go ahead and give the Lord a praise right now. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Hey, hallelujah. Come on, hallelujah. Hallelujah.
I'm going to call an altar call just in a minute. And we have materials up here for you if you're just starting to walk with the Lord. Come and have somebody pray for you. We're not going to ask you to join this church. or I mean, we'd love for you to, but that we're, we're, we want to see you make it to heaven. I want to help you get to heaven. I want to help you live an abundant life right here on earth. Amen? If you, if you would, please grab the communion cup. I couldn't help connect these two. That on that night, Jesus broke bread and revelation came. Their eyes were opened. There's something in the communion. Sometimes in the history of the church, because of the, the reformers' rebellion against the Catholic church or their, their denial of the Catholic faith, what happened is, is they went so far, they said, you know, the Catholics got to the point where the bread was the body of Christ through transubstantiation. Well, the reformers said, well, that's not really biblical, so they backed off of it. And there's been a backing away ever since. And it's come to the point where people just see it as, well, this is just a memory thing. We'll remember what Jesus did for us. But yet, I think it's more than that. It is something whereby we remember the Lord, but God also works in and through the ordinances of the church. We practice two ordinances here, Lord's Supper and baptism. And I don't believe baptism saves you, but I believe it's a command of Jesus. And if you haven't been baptized, I would run to the Welcome Center and tell them, I want to be baptized. Because it's a command of Jesus, and when you're baptized, something happens. God comes spiritually. There's a connection between baptism and sanctification in the Bible. God comes and touches you and circumcises your heart. That's what Dr. Malk used to teach it. Water baptism is a circumcision of the heart. And I think in the same way when we receive the Lord's Supper, yes, it's bread and yes, it's juice. And yes, it's remembering Him. But as we receive it as a body, as we receive it as individuals, God works through it. If He didn't work through it, why would Paul come and warn us about it? That how it's something to be handled with care. So I believe right now that we're going we're gonna to recommission our commission. Years ago, I walked through a tunnel in Israel uh, with a group of people. And Dr. Malky, who was leading the group, he said, if, if you struggle with claustrophobia, you will be healed. Well, I realized why. Because we got in that tunnel, and you, I'm scraping to get through it. And there was an elderly gentleman, an African-American guy from Great Britain, and he came out of that. We were walking in knee-deep water, scraping our way through. And I thought, I kept saying, if that man can make it, I can make it. Amen. And we got out of that tunnel. And that man in his British accent, he said, I have recommissioned my commission. I have recommissioned. Come on, you have a commission. So when we receive the Lord's Supper, you're going to say, Lord, here I am again. I'm ready to go again. I'm yours again. Amen. Pull back the top of it and expose the bread. Take the bread and lift it up with me. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he blessed it. And he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat. This is my body. Then he took the juice. He said, drink from it, all of you. 
For this is my covenant of the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for the remission of sins of many. I say to you, I'll not drink of this fruit of the vine again till I drink it anew with you into my Father's kingdom. Let's partake of his blood. Now, can we just give him thanks? Eucharist means thanks in Greek. Can we give him thanks right now? Lord, we give you thanks. We thank you for your blood. We thank you for the empty tomb. Hey, guys, thanks so much for watching and listening to the podcast. And I hope these sermons have been a great blessing and source of encouragement to your life. No matter what you're going through, no matter what you're facing today, Jesus is the answer. I can tell you, He is the answer for your life. I'd love to pray with you before we leave here. So if you never accepted Christ into your life, or if you just have a need in your life, let's lift it up to the Lord right now. Come on, pray with me. Lord Jesus, wash me from all sin. I accept you into my life. I repent of all sin, and I place you on the throne seat of my heart. Lord, I pray right now, you minister to each and every one who just prayed that short prayer with me. Whatever situation they're facing, give them grace right now. Give them the power they need to get through it, Lord. Give miracle signs and wonders today, Lord, to those listening in the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. We declare it done in Jesus' name. Love you guys. Thank you for tuning in and listening and watching us.